Welcome to the Fuzzy Logic Show. I'm Tom Street, and today I'm interviewing Ben Shaw from the Australian National University. He's an archaeologist uh, studying Pacific Island communities, traditional communities. Hello, Ben. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Tom. It's good to be with you. Great to have you here. So you study archaeology in the Pacific on Pacific Islands? I do, yes. I'm an archaeologist and senior lecturer at uh, the School of Culture, History and Language at the ANU, uh, and I primarily work up in Papua New Guinea, although I'm from New Zealand, so I cut my teeth in archaeology there. and Studying what, what Maori archaeological science? Maori archaeology, yep, and, and um, post-contact sort of European historic archaeology as well, and bits and pieces of, of archaeology through French Polynesia, and then, but for the last, let's see, 15 years, I think, working up in Papua New Guinea. Okay, wow. Um, so recently you've been working off some little islands. Um, well, what, what got you into, into studying archaeology initially? Good question. I don't really know. Um, I know I've wanted to be an archaeologist for a long time, since I was a, since I was a kid. Um, I, I guess it was just, you know, the mystery of not knowing sort of much about the human past as a kid, probably reading comic books and, and watching movies and things. But, uh, you know, going into university and through high school, that's what I sort of wanted to pursue, so I kind of carried on in doing that. So, you, yeah, you had a good idea that that's what you wanted to do for a long time then? A, a vague idea, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I kind of didn't really know where I wanted to work, but, um, of course, being in New Zealand, starting with New Zealand archaeology was a good place to work. I mean, it's a very short human history, but a very complex one, so it was great to, to, to start there. Right, and that would be a great start for going on to studying other Pacific Island cultures, I guess. It is, yeah. So, for you know, if you're studying New Zealand history and archaeology we've got a, a human past there that goes back 800 years or so so relatively short and a lot happened in that time from people arriving adapting and then all these things happening right up until the present day and then of course going through the pacific to papua new guinea where you've got a human history that goes back you know at least 50,000 years probably much longer and trying to make sense of a much deeper history um, of of so many different cultural groups and language groups, and just trying to make sense of that all. It's it's hugely, it's compelling and it's interesting and it's you know there's a lot we still don't know. Yeah, oh, all, I'm I'm guessing it's in in a lot of ways it's easier to study the human history of New Zealand because it's so recent, uh, and so you've got fresher deposits and maybe that's you know in a, in a way is a good starting point because so you, you you have all these big things happening in a short period of time and you can paint a pretty a, a clearer picture but then when you're going back 50,000 years it gets more difficult and so maybe it's good to start you know looking at New Zealand history and then moving on to like bigger challenges is that a fair way of putting it it is I, I mean I wouldn't say it's any less complex but at least the in terms of finding Sites. I mean, because as an archaeologist, the things that we're looking at are the remains that are left behind in the ground, you know, from discarded shellfish and bone through to bits of pottery, uh, stone tools and things like that. So essentially the rubbish of the past. But you've got to find the sites first where people once lived. And with islands and places where people lived uh, going back a 1,000 or 2,000 years, the easier to find 
because the preservation is a little bit better. By the time you go back 10, 20, 30,000 years, you know, you're really going blind in a lot of ways, and it's like a needle in a haystack because oftentimes with, you know, changes in sea level and, um, you know, erosion and everything, finding those sites at that age are incredibly difficult, let alone actually modelling what that information means when you find it. So how, how do you find your sites? And, w- and when we say a site, this is somewhere that you go and dig a hole. That's right, right yeah. Well, uh, in, in most cases, yes. But a site, uh, when we say a site, it can be many different things. It could be a rock shelter where people camped overnight. It can be uh, a place where someone drew some paintings on the wall. It can be a beach site where people had a village in the past. So it's, it's quite variable. But when we're looking for sites, so for example, most recently I've been working out in the islands off the eastern tip of New Guinea in something called the Millen Bay province. Uh, and it's a very dynamic place. There's, there's hundreds of islands, from small ones, very small ones, up to very big ones. And we're trying to find coastal sediments where people lived in the past, going back as far back as we can um, try and define it. And we simply walk around the island and, and look for places where it would be attractive for people to live now, you know, f- for really basic things like you need shelter, um, you need somewhere to bring in your canoe. If you're going to arrive on the island, you need somewhere where you can get fresh water um, and a landscape big enough that you can actually live on and eventually you know, have gardens and things like that. And then the other side of that coin is we look at our feet, you know, we look at the soil, if, if the sand, for example, is very coarse and heavy that you find on like a very high-energy beach, chances are that's been washed in and out many, many times before, and so things are probably not preserved. But if you find a sandy beach with very, very fine sand, it's very low energy, it's probably been deposited there and, and left there for thousands of years, and the chances of finding something going back a couple of thousand years or further, there's a higher chance of that still being there. On a fine sand beach? Uh, or, or on any coastal landscape, but we're just thinking about, um, you know, waves and erosion processes that actually just wipe that out right. you know, in the intervening period from when they lived there until the pr- present day. Yeah. I, mean, you, I, I would have thought it's something similar to, um, what, like, a ge- who else digs up sediment? Like, like people that are looking at other like maybe deeper history, looking at different... You're looking for an area where things are being progressively deposited and building up, right, rather than... I mean, if you look at, say, a settlement site on the top of a hill where the soil is just being eroding away, everything's going to get carried away elsewhere, and so yeah. you're not going to find it, it, stuff that's been deposited there. Whereas if you find somewhere that stuff has been deposited and then building up in layers and layers and layers, and you can look back in history, and each layer um, comes from a particular period in time... That, that's right. Yeah, that's that's spot on, and that's that's what we're looking for is that kind of that layer cake yeah. in, in the soil, you know. And we're always standing on the present day surface. We're really going backwards through time, you know, from recent to to older. And so, as an archaeologist, we're always trying to work with other disciplines. So, um, say geologists who study the layers and rocks, and geomorphologists that study how soils are actually formed. To, to go to a landscape and go, okay, where where would people uh, not only likely be living, but where is it likely to be preserved? 
and you know combining all that information you can look at a say a place the size of Canberra right and and going okay well that's a huge challenge to go and find places where people might have lived 10,000 to 20,000 years ago but if you look at the landscape and go okay in rivers it's likely to be scoured away on hillsides it's likely to have erosion you can really quickly narrow down places where it's higher likelihood of of things having remained in place and would have been also an attractive place where people would have wanted to live and stay and then you can kind of focus your attention on that and then broaden out from that to try and find other sites to try and find the, the full sort of scope of human activity across that landscape over time so it really is little pieces of the puzzles and in most places of the pacific and certainly in new guinea we're, we've really only got a few pieces of that puzzle so far because work's only just started in some areas um or we've only found sites of a certain age or cave sites and so we're trying to reconstruct the human history and a very deep human history from a small number of sites in some cases so so you're one of the very first people that's deeply studying this sort of stuff or is there um not there are there are a few archaeologists working up in new guinea and uh some of the first sort of detailed archaeological studies that were done in new guinea was sort of in the late 50s um, and, and remarkable work has been done since then and we've got some brilliant colleagues in New Guinea um, doing archaeology as well but it's a fairly small group of people when you consider the the massive diversity in, in New Guinea and the huge landscape I mean we're dealing with um, a relatively small island to the north of Australia that has you know, a thousand different languages and a huge array of different sort of topographies you know high mountains going up four or five thousand meters to these little atolls you know out in the tropical ocean and so how people have adapted to those landscapes would be vastly different um to you know up in the mountains versus on an island and would be very different ten thousand years ago than it would be like a thousand years ago because the you know sea levels have changed um, the climate's changed, technologies have changed, and so we're trying to put all those little pieces together to try and go, you know, what were people doing here and how were they surviving and thriving in these in these landscapes, which evidently um, they have. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, that's, it kind of boggles the mind. You just, you've got these massive, uh, complicated questions. Like, this is just so much to understand there. Is that, I mean, if you compare it to Europe and how many languages you know now exist in Europe I suppose and the it, it seems supremely complicated um, yeah so I, I'm not sure, you know I want to say how did they survive <laughs> and thrive what, what have you what, what what have you discovered I mean is that too broad a question uh, it is a very broad question but it is you know the the, the crux of it all um, and you know we think of indigenous communities and, and cultures having uh, a long history, which they have. But what we do find when we look at the archaeology of, of different areas is that people um, they do adapt to challenges that they face over long periods of time. But oftentimes, say 
one of the largest challenges humans faced up in New Guinea was the last ice age. So that was um, about 20,000 years ago, and it's when the Earth cooled considerably compared to today. And, for example, up in the mountains, it would have been a lot colder than today by about 7 degrees. It doesn't sound like a lot, but that would have brought tree line down a lot lower than it is today and the snow-capped peaks which are now quite high would have been within the valleys where people were, uh, the population centres are today so people moved down into the lower landscapes into the islands and, and lower coasts So you're saying the snow would have been down in the valleys where people are living now or people would have been living in the valleys and not in the mountaintops? They, I mean they would have the, the, la the, the temperature would have dropped during the ice age so that means that the Most snow would have been able to come down a bit lower because the, mm. the temperature gradient would be lower too and so it affects where people can live and, and sort of survive and so most of those mountains for example probably wouldn't have been habitable until again after the ice age and so people are moving around a lot. In oh, the so the whole highland region where a lot of people now live in Papua New Guinea, right? Yeah. Would have been uninhabitable. In the higher valleys, yeah, probably. Yeah. That's that's what the, the archaeological sites were found so far has told us. That there wasn't human habitation. There was, there was habitation before the Ice Age and then afterwards, but during it, people were moving probably there's there's no record of it so they're probably moving down with these lower valleys right and so a project that i worked on uh in 2015 16 we did the field work for as part of a australian research council funded project we went up into highland valley called the simbi and the kaironk and my job on that project was to survey these valleys to look for archaeological sites to investigate to try and put together this long-term human history with the communities because of course you first need to get permission from the communities this is all traditional land that we're working on and uh, I mean of course that's a long process and a very enjoyable process I think a part of the job so how, how does that go down like do you just rock up in an in an area and then start talking to the people that are there or do you, do you contact them before you arrive? Or? I always try and contact them before I arrive into the region, like quite a long time beforehand. But often I've found that the messages I've sent have not come through because yeah. most of these areas are, are still quite remote. And I imagine so, a, lot of, a lot of people don't have you know an official email address or something like that where you can no, phone and, number. No, cell phone towers and communications um, are relatively new in some areas and and where they are have been established are quite patchy. And so, you know, when I get up there, I spend quite a long time in the community. So I'll spend at minimum like a month, but normally like two or three. And the reason for that is not to do the archaeology. You can move around quite quickly, but it's to spend time in each village and talking with all the different clan groups and taking the time to actually discuss with them what I'm looking to do and give them time to go away and think of questions and come back and, and essentially challenge me because this is often a, a new concept to um, people whose traditional land, you know, it's owned by lots of different people, so I need to get, like, unanimous permission to do the work. And quite naturally, if, if someone comes in who you've never met and said, hey, look, I want to look around this landscape and look for sites where people lived in the past and excavate them, you know, the natural inclination is to go, what, why, why here, uh -huh. and who are you? 
Uh-huh. And so you really want to take the time to um, get to know people and so they get to know you and, and be very honest and transparent about it. And it's a concept that they've got no familiarity with archaeology, right? Like, or... um, archaeology often not, but the, the, the communities are you know, deeply connected with their own past through oral stories, but approaching it through archaeology is, is very different. You know, because we're, we're we're looking at it from the human uh, the the cultural remains in the ground and, and trying to reconstruct it that way, um, and so trying to connect those two can can be a challenge, and so it's just trying to get that across with with um, without missing anything, so that they they understand what I'm doing and and that you know it gives them a chance to sort of follow along with the work so that um, there's just a fuller understanding, which which is always occurring. It's like ongoing negotiation, as you can imagine, because, you know, there's areas that are sacred where people won't want you to go. And I always say, look, um, I always have someone with me from the community, and if you don't want me to go somewhere, I'll turn around and we'll walk away. And likewise with archaeological work, full stop. I said, if you don't want it to happen... Um, and that's not happened because we've just I've taken time to get to know the community, but of course being challenged and being asked tough questions is is part and parcel of what we do because it's it can be a very sensitive uh, topic uh, for people. What's an example of a tough question? Uh, well, it's just just being um, sort of questioned about you know the validity of the validity of the research like they the communities want to know that you've gone through the official channels which of course always have you know being associated with the national museum and getting research visas and and the like but as i explained to anyone who i'm working with it doesn't matter how much official permission i've got what it comes down to is um the people on the ground saying yes or no but because oftentimes, uh, say, for example, in the islands where I'm working now in Melon Bay province, there's a long history of sort of exploitation in, like, the 19th century of mining and blackbirding and, and things like that, and World War II was taking place there, um, where a lot of things happened. And so the, the memories of those events, even though they seem like a long time ago, were still very fresh. And so someone else coming in that they don't know whether it be Australia or from New Zealand um, you know there's there's that natural distrust often which I can totally understand I'd, I'd be exactly the same if someone came into my town and said I'm doing this so it's just um, yeah just building that trust essentially yeah mm. and how involved do they generally get in in the excavation process do you do you employ local people to help you with that or yeah every every step of the way um and that's really the way i like to do the archaeology in in new guinea is community-based so staying in the village with with a host family um you know contributing with with food and and um you know having people with helping with cooking and collecting firewood and helping out with that and with if I'm out surveying, because you've got to find these sites, say you're out every day walking around the mountains or the coast, wherever you might be, having you know clan owners and landowners walking around with you, and 
when it comes to excavation, like most of the team is the local community, which is really, really the fun part. Like it yeah. is really. And what do they part. think of it generally? Or it it's a real sense of excitement. It really is because you know there's there's a deep understanding of the human past in most places of of being, but not often associated with the remains that you find in the ground. Like because the communities will dig, for example, like a well to get fresh water, or they'll be digging a toilet pit and they'll find pottery or a broken piece of stone tool two meters under the ground, and they'll go, "That's interesting," but they'll throw it away. And when we're doing the same thing, but in like a systematic excavation, where you open up, say, like you know, four square meters, and you're digging very carefully, um, bit by bit, five or ten centimeters going down through the ground, through the through the past. And actually connecting the dots between what we're finding. You know, if it's fish bone, what kind of fish were they harvesting? Was it from the reef? Was it from the lagoon? Was it deep water fish? What kind of shells were they? Were they changing over time um, with the changing environment? And what does the pottery look like? Is that changing over time, reflecting sort of social connections and um, the decoration on the pots? Is that reflecting changes and the patterns that they're putting on and what does that mean and so talking you're always talking and you're always kind of spitballing ideas about what you're finding as yeah. it comes out of the ground and and so the communities are deeply engaged in that and often the insights that we're getting because we can put together like a framework of archaeology based on say radiocarbon dating how old stuff is look at basic changes in the record this pottery is different from this pottery but it's the insights you get from the community that really put the flesh on the bones of the models. Right. So, like, what sort of stuff, comments do they make? Uh, well, even even though the, the archaeology that we're dealing with goes back long before the oral histories, you know, there's insights into why people might leave or, or come onto an island or change the way they're living there based on, you know, the El, El Nino or La Nina pattern of of wind and rain which affects their the yearly harvest because most communities are subsistence farmers and rely on their um, gardens to survive so they might leave an island because of el nino and a drought and they just they they like run out of food and they have to go or, the, or, or they'll yeah they'll they'll go to a, a neighboring island okay. or they'll be trading with their their neighbors and it might change because they're there might be a disagreement or a period of uh, conflict between neighbouring groups and then that, that trade connection is cut off and so you see that in the archaeological record where this object is no longer being traded to the island anymore. Um, and so one of the most fascinating stories I was told was in the Millen Bay province in the islands there's this well-known uh, exchange network called the Kula and it involves several islands in kind of a circular pattern. And people will trade between islands, and some of them are quite dangerous uh, voyages by canoe to, to exchange these shell ornaments with a trade partner. And these different shell ornaments will go in a clockwise or anti-clockwise position, so you always have trade partners going around these islands at different times of the year. And this has been going on for hundreds of years. And one of the islands I was working on um, was part of this cooler network, and they hadn't been for, you know, 100 years or 200 years. But they remember a time in their oral history when they were once connected to it. 
And so, you know, archaeologists were trying to figure out why this island was no longer involved. And, and I was out there, so I was just sitting and talking with the communities and said, you know, what is the reason why this island is not not connected anymore? And they said, well, it was um, it was a case of adultery and, and the conflict that ensued afterwards because trade partners came in and someone got a bit too friendly with someone else's wife and it caused an argument and someone got hurt or killed and and that trade connection was just cut off and it just never resolved in that capacity again. And so you're saying for a couple of hundred years that that island has remained outside of that trading network because of one incident of adultery. That that's that's their story and okay. and it you know it really makes you put into perspective that all these complex patterns that we're reconstructing through the material culture has a very human element to it and you could see that in the sediments that like there was a the more recent layers just didn't have these shells Is that yes what, yeah. yeah yeah and and the forms of um pottery okay so um in these islands there's there's pottery that is made and traded between these islands nearby and it's a very distinctive form and very distinctive decoration and I went and found a site and, and excavated it, and there's all these different types of pottery there that I'd not seen before. And I was, I was looking at other archaeological records from that area and realised it came from this island to the north, which was one of these Kula partnering exchange partners. And most of the pottery was coming from there, and then on the layers on top of that, it was absent. And so in in the process of doing this archaeology we were trying to understand why these patterns and the changing pottery were um, occurring and we know that it had something to do with changes in how people were interacting with different islands particularly this island to the north um, and that's what led us to ask these questions and found out that there was a real human yeah. story behind it. Right, yeah, and it equated really well with what you were seeing in the soil sediments. Yeah, that's right, yeah. 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 And, of course, it doesn't always pan out that way, and archaeology is never there to credit or discredit oral histories. It's a, a, a um, independent line of history that is unique to every community, and because archaeology is in many ways, broad brushstrokes of the human past. Uh, it can get quite detailed, but not to the level of, say, an oral history, which connects people to place and through generations with named individuals and, and actions which we can't get to in archaeology. So um, we, yeah, we don't seek to change oral histories, but sort of complement it by going back further in time. Yeah. But it, does, it, does their oral history inform the conclusions that you draw about what you're finding? It, it can do, yeah. It, it really can. And so we can look at the oral histories and then go, you know, are we seeing similar things in the record that might connect? And I was working on this island called Nimawa, a very small island, and the other name for it is Pig Island. And so we went and dug there and we found a a sequence on this beach that went back two and a half thousand years but there was a break in the cultural deposition where it seemed like no one was living there between you know 1300 and 500 years ago and that's a long time and we we're going well why would people leave were they living somewhere else on the island were they living on an island nearby you know what what's going on and the community who were living in the place we were excavating had said to us up front 
we've been living here for 500 years. So that's really interesting. And then I got the radiocarbon dates back. And in the top deposit, there's multiple village surfaces going back 500 years. And nothing before that for hundreds of years where people just were absent. And I said, well, why is, why is it called Pig Island? And they said, well, when we turned up 500 years ago, people hadn't, weren't here. Um, but there were lots and lots of pigs on the island, which were, they said, must have been introduced by people at some time in the past, but the people had gone and left the pigs there and the pig population grew and became um, unwieldy. So they started making gardens and the pigs would come and destroy those gardens. You know, they'd root up the vegetables and eat them. So they had to kill all the pigs or control them to the best of their ability so that they could garden and set up the village. And funnily enough, I was looking through all the bone material that we found in these village layers in the last 500 years, and the lowest one that they dated to 500 years was full of pig bone, but big pigs that had just been, um, like, slaughtered and, and discarded. You don't think they ate them? They would have eaten them. Yeah, I mean, there's cut marks on the bones that you would expect to find if it had been disarticulated for, you know, taking it across a meat joint to cook on the fire or something. Um, but it, high levels of pigs that you'd see in any sort of in, even modern community. So it, it seemed to connect with that story where um, people were turning up 500 years ago and finding this pig population and having to control it somehow. Yeah. It seems like you're reluctant to draw f firm conclusions, which I guess is is very reasonable. But I, I, I mean, I hear that and I'm like, that's absolutely what happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that seems amazing that, uh, yeah, that they would have that um, really clear oral history. Whereas, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I, I know very little about, you know, what my ancestors would have been doing 500 years ago to that level of detail. So... I guess maybe when you're on one discrete community on a little island and everyone maybe has been doing a sort of similar thing for 500 years rather than where you live on a continent and all your ancestors are coming from here and there and it's it's maybe a lot more mixed up. It's easier to preserve a history because may, maybe everyone has it in common. I, yeah, I don't know. Do you have any theories about I, why, why you have such a clear oral history about something that happened 500 years ago? I think in that case, yeah, because those islands are quite small... And, you know, the, the language group out there is, it's spoken across many islands, you know, nearby. So the communities that were living out there have probably been living on those islands for a long, long time. If not on, you know, this one in particular, then probably one next door. You know, they're probably just moving around in, in these sort of community groups. Um, and so the yeah. oral histories probably are a bit stronger. Yeah. But in other areas... You know, either larger populations or more disruption, either from from warfare or, or what have you. There's there's many reasons for it. It might not be as clear, um, or it might just not be as well remembered. I guess in a way, like those are really big events. That's their whole universe, right? Like we, you know, in, if we still relied on old history, maybe we'd remember things like the Romans and the Middle Ages, and you know, I don't know, like the really big events, like in a European context or in Australian context, or you, you know, maybe you remember like two hundred years ago that the first English people started coming to Australia, for instance, and 
the Aboriginal people here and like the basics of that story. And maybe I don't know about my particular family, but just those big events would still be remembered, I assume. And, and, and like maybe this, like to us, it's, oh, it's just one little island with some pigs. But for them in their world, that's a really big deal. That's, that's right. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's, um, where they've lived for, for a long time. So, of course, yeah, these big events are, are remembered. And there is instances where big events have been remembered for thousands of years. And maybe not the really high detail, like that particular story, but, you know, there's volcanic eruptions in Australia that are remembered from 8,000 years ago. And when I was working up in the highlands of New Guinea, I was talking with the community about our line of thinking about when people might have been moving up into the highlands a bit more. And in this particular part of the highlands, you go from, we were at 2,000 metres above sea level, but if you go down that mountain range to the lowlands, you know, coastal lowlands, it's very low-lying. And so um, 5,000, 6,000 years ago, the, the sea level was slightly higher than it was today. And so the coast, the sea would have come inland about 100 kilometres further than it does today. So the, the sea would have formed this giant basin in these lowlands that right up to the base of the mountains. And so it would have been easier for people to sail in and come straight up the mountains to where the, uh, the people were living today. And so I was saying, well, maybe, you know, and we're finding lots of sites that were four, five, six thousand years ago and saying, well, maybe when the lowlands were flooded, um, because of the higher sea level, it would have been easier for people to get up. And these community members said, how do you know about that? I said, well, what do you mean? I said, it's based on some works of, of a colleague of mine, Pam Swaddling, who did a lot of work down there and did some coring and found out that, you know, at this time it was a floodplain and then it became filled in with, with land. So it was based on archaeological methods. But they said, well, this is a story that... Um, is in our history for for a long period of time and and so that must go back at minimum two thousand years but wow. at the most it could go back six or seven thousand years that's so cool <laughs> it's it's an incredible connection and and we would have never made it if 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 we weren't just sitting there around the fire at night just sort of telling stories and and talking about what we were doing and and just trying to make connections with um you know their own human past so what do you think they thought of of you and what you're doing when you explain that to them uh it was it was joint fascination because i was fascinated by um the community stories but uh of course you know they were intrigued about where i'd got that information from and then when i was explaining it to them that it was through the process of coring getting a, a section of sediment through the ground and looking at the different layers of the soil going from you know what you'd find at the bottom of, of the sea that changes to you know infilling when the sea retreated and and radiocarbon dating and, and everything that goes with it um and, and it was just a great process of kind of like this mutual so did they get that and they think it was pretty cool that, did yeah they get, does that yeah. get them on board with the whole process yeah and we were both just totally excited about yeah um okay coming. so you're just exploring it together like you're saying like this is what we're finding they're involved in the digging process and discussing it together yeah and they're telling you their stories and you're trying to put the things together and and then would say well i'd, I'd say well look you know 
we we can reconstruct when the sea changed, but what we don't know is how people responded to that. You know, mm. that's that's what we're trying to get at. That's what we're trying to understand. And so I'd be like, well, what are your what are your thoughts on what, what people might have done at this time? And you know, just drawing observations on how people live in the mountains for in these environments. You know, get their perspectives on where pe- people have moved, how they would have moved around the landscape, and and um, how they would have what pathways they would have taken up into the mountains, and where would they have chosen to live at these different points in time in that different environment with a high different sea environment. level. Yeah, yeah. And so we've got a project starting that actually started in 2020, but of course put that on ice well um when the covid pandemic started but later this year we'll go up in september or probably october and um start doing a bit of survey on this lowland basin to try and find these villages on the edge of these former coastlines which is going to be a huge challenge because they're probably deeply buried but i think it's worth trying to combine so you 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 really got to dig through maybe a meter or two of sediment and just to start finding some sign that you're even in the right place. Yeah, so it's, it's going to be, again, looking around that landscape and going, okay, let's find some high points that might have been an island 5,000 years ago or a high point next to the sea 5,000 years ago um, and, and target those and then just digging a lot of holes, not even to find archaeology, but just try to understand how that sediment had built up over time. So then we can change our sort of predictive model about where we should be looking and then we can start honing in and then we should start finding these locations where people were living at that time. So it's a it's a process of kind of narrowing narrowing your focus. Right. And it, from seeing some stuff um, that about you online and some of the work you've been doing, it looked like a lot of it's quite seed of the pants. Like you would turn up and, you know, like a few hours before you had to leave a particular area, you'd, like someone would take you to a cave and you'd dig there quickly and find something really remarkable and, and then come back and you could easily have missed that, for instance. Yeah, look, it's um, archaeology is a funny thing. You know, in Murphy's Law, you, you could spend weeks and weeks and weeks looking for a particular type of site or location. And most often, you'll probably find it on the last afternoon of the last day <laughs> when you don't have time to really look at it. And that was the case when, you know, again, starting this work out in the Millen Bay province and these islands, I'd, I'd gone to this island to look for early human evidence for people being in that region, um, hopefully going back tens of thousands of years, because the human history of this area at the time went back 2,000 years at the most, as known through archaeology. So we wanted to extend that by finding older sites. And so I went to an uplifted limestone island. And the reason I chose that landscape is because on one side of the island it was vertical limestone cliffs that had uplifted out of the sea. So whether, you know, doesn't matter how much the sea level had changed during the Ice Age and various times in the past, that coast would always be the same. In other parts of the region, because you've got really shallow lagoons, you know, if the sea level was, you know, 40 metres lower, uh, well, during the Ice Age, the sea levels were as much as 120 
meters lower than it was today. This is 10,000 years ago? To about 20,000 years oh, ago. 20, years. Okay. Then the coastline would be at the edges of these lagoons, so you're never going to find coastal sites. So we chose this uplifted limestone island where the coast would never have changed because it's basically vertical limestone cliffs. And we looked and looked and looked for a cave or a, a place where we might find old evidence of human sediment. And we just couldn't find anything. And on the last day, we were just walking back to the village, you know, kind of going, oh, well, we tried. And then we saw someone in the garden, and they spoke in um, language to the people that were with us, and then he just started walking through the bush. And I said, well, where were we going? And he goes, he's got a cave he wants to show us. <laughs> and, of course, we walked in and said, if anywhere, it's going to be here, because it, it was just this... Um, really dry cave had sediment inside it was protected from so it's not like the soil from from outside was getting washed in washed uh, blown in and there's no way for it to be eroded out like there was no okay. cracks in the ceiling so this is building up building up building up yeah. slowly over the years and yeah. so if someone came in there to build a fire and stay for a few nights yep that well, would just gradually get buried yeah and then so we had time to quickly dig a quick hole at the back of the cave mm. just to see how deep it was and we got burnt shell from the very bottom, which showed that people had burnt it in a fireplace. So I took that back and got it radio And you're thinking, Eureka, we found something. Yeah, yeah. it was 17,000 years old. Right. And so we went back and very carefully um, excavated a larger part of the cave. And, and we, we dug down two or three centimetres at a time just to collect every single little bit of information that we could. And we, yeah, we, we got a sequence that went back uh, 17 to about 12,000 years, people were using it. And this was just after the last ice age. So it looked like when the sea levels were rising up again, the earth was warming up and those coastlines were starting to flood. People would have probably retreated back to that higher uplifted limestone coastline and used this cave probably as a place of refuge. And then from 12,000 to 4,500 years ago, there was no evidence of use in that cave at all um and that's when things really started to flood like the, the lagoons would have filled in islands would have shrunk in size by um up to 90 percent in some cases and people returned about four and a half thousand years ago and when they returned the shells they were eating were very different because now there were sandy beaches not these rocky shores so the habitats were very different and so we could trace um, not only what the people were doing, but what the habitats, the ecosystems were like that they were living yeah. in. So when you say you get, saw a sequence, that's just, uh, it's it's all been, uh, there's like, there's still sequences of, of soil layers that, that show different periods of time between that, those periods, but there just isn't any signs of human habitation, right? And is that right? There's, there's soil yeah. being laid down, but no no human artifacts or that's right so you often get um between where if there's if there's periods of time where there's no human use there'll be sediment there probably most of the time but it accumulates at a slower rate because when people are using a place it builds up a lot quicker because you know people are kicking around dirt and bringing stuff in all the organics um if you know if they're eating stuff and dropping it on the ground that turns into into soil of some kind right. um, so you do see the changes in the how quickly sediment builds up 
And the most remarkable case of sediment build-up was just next to the same island, actually, uh, called Brooker. Very tiny island. It's only, I think, one and a half square kilometres. I mean, you could walk around it in a couple of hours. It's very small. But it had a big bay on it, very sheltered. And so we went to this particular island going, okay, we want to find the earliest evidence for um, the cultural groups that introduced pottery to New Guinea. And what was significant about the introduction of pottery to New Guinea is that it's associated with these cultural groups called Lapita. And Lapita cultural groups were the very first ones to reach the islands of uh, like Vanuatu, New Caledonia, Tonga, Samoa, Fiji. Before then, there was no people there. And they were the first ones to get there because they had the sailing technology to cross those huge uh, you know, ocean distances to get there. Right, so the people were already in Papua New Guinea before the Lapita, but where the Lapita came from further west? Further and, west. And then travelled past where previous, where there were already people settled, but then continued onwards out into the Pacific. That's that's exactly right, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, New Guinea and the Solomon Islands have got a human and have got a human history that go back 50,000, 60,000 years, if yeah. not longer. But once you get past the Solomon Islands, the distances between islands are huge. And so I'm sure people would have tried. But after decades and decades and decades of really detailed work, the earliest sites on all these islands out beyond that are Lapita sites. And the way that that's been recognised is by this very distinctively decorated pottery. Well, for starters, it's the first pottery in New Guinea, but it's it's kind of like tattoo designs on it, very, you know, unique in its its form as well. And so when you do find it, you're like, that looks like Lapita. So you know you're on the right track. And, of course, you've got... And the earliest Lapita sites are found in New Guinea about um, 3,300 years ago. And they... You know, based on all this archaeological work, it seems like they stayed in this archipelago called the Bismarck Archipelago, which is to the north of where I'm working. And then eventually, about 3,000 years ago, very rapidly, they moved out, skipped most of the Solomon Islands, and went out to, you know, Vanuatu, New Caledonia, and very quickly colonised these islands. And like, very rapidly, within probably a century. So right. within remembered history of, of, you know, by the time people reach Fiji, you know, it was probably like their father or grandfather were the ones and, and grandmother that reached Vanuatu so extremely quickly. And the question that we had was, okay, we find these cultural groups up in the Bismarck Archipelago, and it seems that where they're choosing to live are on these tiny little offshore islands off the coast of these larger islands. And so the model was always, well, maybe it's because people were already living there and they were trying to avoid conflict or if they were finding these new landscapes to live on. Um, you know, why are we not finding any interaction between these indigenous cultural groups and these incoming Lapita groups? And why did they choose to suddenly go off and colonise these islands? And so further south of the Bismarck Archipelago is the Millen Bay Islands, and so I went to this island called Brooker to see if I could find evidence for Lapita down there, and it had never been found in this region. But, you know, by 
all laws of probability and given how extensive their um, they're obviously very masterful navigators and, and sailors and they manage these really extensive networks of exchange between all these islands so by all probability they should have gone visited down south why didn't they? well no one's looked so they just assumed that they didn't go down there I said well where are we likely to find it? and so I looked at you know all 600 islands in this area and I narrowed it down to this one and I said this one is at the beginning of it's at the western end of the archipelago so if you're traveling from the Bismarck archipelago or mainland New Guinea it's the first point of entry into the archipelago it's also on the edge of a reef so it's a really attractive place to be you know lots of food resources shellfish and fish on and the, the reef. sort of place you found other evidence of lapita people yeah yeah that's right in, in other places and other islands that's where you tend to find lapita sites that's where they're choosing to stay and it's in this large sheltered bay that's sheltered from strong winds in a place that you could basically park your canoe and, and set up a village and so we started digging there and and it got deeper and deeper and deeper and we we're going geez when's this gonna finish we, we dug down three meters we never reached the bottom. And you, sorry, and you're finding evidence of Lapita people the whole way? Is that what you're Most of the way. So at the very bottom... So they've been there for a long, long time. Well, um, talking about sediment accumulation, they'd been there for a relatively short time, okay. but they had such a huge impact on the island. There was a lot of erosion going there on. There was a lot of erosion and sediment build-up. Yeah. And so at three metres depth, we found evidence of people being there four and a half thousand years ago. Okay. So not Lapita, indigenous populations. And then above that, we found um, not the introduction of pottery, but we found the introduction of um, pigs and dogs. Well, from every archaeological site that's been done dug in the Pacific, Lapita cultural groups were responsible for introducing those animals into New Guinea. And I said, well, where do these pigs and dogs come from? And not only that, there was, it was basically like a bed of bone. Whoever turned up there... Um, hit the turtle po the local turtle population hard, ate the turtles and turned their turtle shells into tools. They harvested a hell of a lot of fish from the reef. And this was about 3,300 years ago. So this is the same time that we find the earliest Lapita sediments further up north. And so we started going, okay, well, what's the likely explanation for this? Uh, is this... You know, are these, you know, there's a few different explanations we could look at because overlying that layer, then we find the introduction of pottery. And that this is Lapita, but it's like 400 years later. So the people before the Lapita came in and ate heaps of turtles and stuff. Yeah, and brought, did you say they brought in the pigs and the... They brought in the pigs and the dogs. Right, that, but they weren't Lapita, even though the Lapita were bringing the pigs and the dogs to other places. So we know, yeah, so Lapita, with all the pottery and stuff, came in much later. So Before maybe they that, were trading with Lapita, and then they brought the that's, them themselves. That's what we're thinking, yeah, yeah. So maybe they, either indigenous populations were, Lapita was nearby, and they were going, you know, thank you very much, we'll take these pigs and chickens and, and dogs. Um... But, you know, you can keep your pottery because we've got no use for it. Um, and then when Lapita groups themselves came in the region, you know, there's, let's see, I think it was a metre and a half of soil deposited within 
probably 100 years. So that's a lot. It's a lot. So that caused a lot of erosion on the land. Yeah, and what, what looked like, and, and this wasn't sand, so what probably happened is that when they turned up subsequently, um, they probably cleared the bush off the hills behind it, which are quite steep, to make their gardens. And, of course, once you clear the hills, all the sediment becomes more mobile and it flows down and would have had a huge impact on the island ecosystem. But beautifully, beautifully preserved all the activities they were doing within that century. So we've got these fine-grained records of um, first this excavated area was a cooking area. You could see stone-lined cooking places. And then over top of that, there's um, a huge concentration of pottery where either they were um, making pottery there or discarding it, sweeping it to the side or something. And then all the way up. Um, But having that evidence um, earlier than we expected for the introduction of um, these animals and thinking, well, they must have had these interactions with early Lapita populations, it tells us, that the most significant things is it tells us that Lapita groups expanded really rapidly around New Guinea. And the reason they probably chose 3,000 years ago to very quickly move out into these uninhabited islands of Vanuatu is because they probably did expand around New Guinea and encountered lots of indigenous populations and they were probably trying to find um, and the the nature of those interactions was probably influencing the direction which they ultimately put most of their attention towards which was going out east into these uninhabited islands. So you're saying that's the point at which they'd fully populated all the little spaces that they could find around New Guinea and it's like, okay, we're full, and then we can see there's maybe little islands out that way, and then that, all that, and it, the growth is just directed out. Yeah, so it, it seems that like a lot of these landscapes are already occupied. They were exploring all of them, um, and Lapita were you know, very clearly mobile. Mm. They, they were deliberately looking across vast areas of different landscapes to try and settle and maintain these long-term connections. And in doing so, one of those routes that they were exploring was out east. And what seems to happen over many generations is that they're going, okay, it seemed that the earliest um, movements down south outside of the Bismarck archipelago wasn't successful. They didn't stay there. And so they probably put less effort into moving down south and started going out east. And So, so the, the inhabitants... The, the peoples of the Eastern Pacific Islands now the descendants basically of Lapita people or were the subsequent waves of immigration? Um, this was both. So ultimately uh, you can trace ancestry back or cultural ancestry at least to Lapita cultural groups. This is when we start to see um, a lot of similarities between contemporary and archaeological cultural groups. So you start to see... Um, a lot of the materials that are used today are found in these early Lapita sites. But, and so, much later in time, people did move out into eastern Polynesia and get to New Zealand and Hawaii and Easter Island and things. And so you can trace, generally speaking, the ancestry back to Lapita, but there were many subsequent waves of populations that came through. Um, and, and the waves of really highly mobile, ocean-going peoples? Over subsequent thousands of years, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we know that the first migrants out to Vanuatu 
had um, exclusively Asian genetic signatures. So are you getting much DNA out, out of – can you recover DNA out of, the, out of the pigs and human remains in the we, – We've tried. It's very difficult because it often doesn't preserve in tropical environments. Yeah, okay. But there's a, um, a cemetery, a Lapita cemetery on, on, in Vanuatu called Tayuma where they managed to get DNA from some of the ancient skeletons. And the first migrants out there were um, you know, these East Asian genomes – and Lapita people would have ultimately come from island Southeast Asia. Do you know where? Is it like the Philippines, Indonesia? I'm assuming it's an island area where people would be developing those boats. Yes, yeah. So in in the long-term perspective, you can trace the movement of these cultural groups all the way through like the Philippines, Luzon, and Taiwan, and ultimately from China, um, going back thousands of years before Lapita arrived. Um, and then eventually these technologies and these cultural groups migrated through and interacted with indigenous populations in New Guinea and became Lapita. Um, and then, so the first people out to Vanuatu were, had those genomes, and then subsequently, you know, within a thousand years, you start to see more uh, Papuan influences in Vanuatu. So whether the migration of people from, from New Guinea themselves or people who had you know, intermarried or you know, admixed with populations in New Guinea because um, presumably they've been living there for a long time and then coming out and, of course, um, reaching Vanuatu much later. So, you know, the genomes of, of people are, you know, the combined history of, of thousands of years of interaction and so, so you're saying initially people in Vanuatu, like those early Lapita settlers from that from that um, cemetery site that you managed to get DNA from, were, were related to modern people in China, the people that live in China now? Or? Not, um, not, not China necessarily, but in, in island Southeast Asia, so like the Philippines and, and those sort of islands, and the uh, a component of that genetic signature, which is sort of related to the um, the historic um, component of the people that were once living in that area coming through. So it's, you know, if you think of your, your genomes are, as sort of a combination of your parents and your grandparents and going back and ancestors, you can sort of trace the, those lineages or those sort of genetic markers in your DNA. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a geneticist and, and it's my colleagues at ANU that worked on the cemetery site called Tayama at Vanuatu but it was a very clear signature and a lot of these um, a lot of the cultural groups elsewhere in, in Polynesia sort of have similar markers as well. I've got so many more questions <laughs> but unfortunately sorry that recording cuts out so abruptly there that's where we ended the interview because we ran out of time for the live broadcast so that was Ben Shaw from the Australian National University thanks very much for listening Catch you next week.